The Russians aren't just coming, they're here. On Twitter and Facebook, a network of social media accounts controlled by the Kremlin in an attempt to exploit divisions within American society, poison our debates, and turn us against each other. Moscow's disinformation campaign also has targeted more than two dozen European nations. To talk about all this, I'm joined this week by Jamie Fly and Laura Rosenberger of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Both are seasoned national security professionals, Laura on the Democratic side of the aisle, Jamie on the Republican. They have conducted extensive bipartisan research on the Russian disinformation campaign and what needs to be done about it. This is Foreign Policy. Either the U.S. enforces some rules in the world, or there are no Every U.S. president has tried to diminish tension with Russia, has reached out to the Russians. Most of those have failed, especially when Vladimir Putin became the leader. They're still killing guys who joined the jihad in 1979 or 1980 or 1981 who are still in the game. We are seeing a ramp up in North Korean cyber capabilities over the last decade. Iran is basically putting forth these claims of nuclear innocence that they are doing nothing wrong, that there are no violations, and that's just factually not correct. I am fearful for what happens to Turkey now. If you thought that it was dangerous that a coup might have toppled this democracy, think about what this very autocratic man might do. Laura Rosenberger, Jamie Fly, thanks for being here. We're not talking about charges that President Trump colluded or conspired with Russians in order to win a presidential election. That's not the subject of our discussion today. Am I correct, Laura? That's absolutely correct. <laughs> and tell us, so what are we discussing today? Well, Cliff, I, I think our project, the German Marshall Fund, the Alliance for Securing Democracy, is all about focusing on the challenge that foreign governments, especially authoritarian regimes, pose to our democracy. They're trying to interfere in our democracy, manipulate our politics. They've been doing that certainly for decades in a variety of ways. And the thing that we're concerned about is our openness and our reliant, increasing reliance on social media and technology to get our news has created new avenues of potential influence for these regimes to affect our democratic debates. So, Laura, what do we actually know the Russians under President Vladimir Putin are doing? What do we know? Not what do we speculate, not what do we guess, not what do we worry about. What do we know right now they are and have been doing? Well, we know that since 2007, at least, Russia has interfered in the or tried to undermine the democratic institutions in about 27 countries across the transatlantic space. They've done that using a variety of tools, some of them um, cyber attacks, um, including by trying to undermine faith in government institutions like electric grids. Um, they have tried to so. Uh, now, just stop there for one second. When you say faith in democratic institutions by attacking electrical grids, mm -hmm. how does attacking electrical grid raise questions about democratic governance? Well, democratic governance requires on a pact between the government and the people that the government is going to provide certain services for the people. Um, people begin to lose faith in government if government fails to provide those very basic and fundamental services. And so when government seems inept at doing things like providing for electricity for its people um, and protecting its electric grid, most importantly, um, those are things that begin to undermine faith in institutions. But the important point is that's not happening alone. It's being coupled with um, theft of documents from parliaments, from Congress, from political parties, 
um, across the board. In some cases then, which are weaponized and released publicly in order to create doubt, um, so discord, undermine faith in those bodies themselves. That's also been coupled with corruption that is being used, whether it's supporting certain political parties or politicians, whether it is the financing of information operations or cyber attacks. Um, and we also see the support for extremist groups and parties across the European continent in particular. For instance, this is going to sound crazy probably, but we see um, Russian intelligence services creating what they have called fight clubs, mm -hmm. where they are training um, extremist activists on particularly violent and disruptive techniques that they can use to then inject into um, highly charged issues in order to basically create the impression that violence is on the rise, um, parties and, and societies are divided against one another. The ultimate goal of all of this is weakening our institutions. It's weakening democracy. It's weakening faith in governance. It's weakening um, the very pillars that are so critical to our national security. We don't always talk about democracy as a national security issue in the sense of actually defending our democratic institutions. And the reality is, as national security professionals, I think Jamie and I both feel very strongly that our democracy, um, a functioning democracy, is critical to advancing our national security interests. And Jamie, let's be clear that what Laura is describing, these methods taking place that the Russians are using in 27 countries, not least in our country, there's no controversy. There's no debate about whether this is happening. It is happening. Uh, you talk to people, I'm sure, in the high in the government and in intelligence, in, in national security professionals in this administration and other administrations. Let's just be clear. Everyone says, yeah, that's what they're doing. Yeah, and our European allies for years have been warning us and trying to talk to various uh, variety of administrations and to Congress to, to talk about these tactics that are being used against them and have been used for quite some time. I think for a long time, though, U.S. policymakers assumed that there was some sort of red line that the Putin regime would not cross, that they would never try to interfere directly in American politics. We thought that this was something that would be isolated in Georgia or Ukraine or the Baltic states, frontline states that Russia felt was in their sphere of influence. And what obviously 2016 showed us, at least what the Russians attempted to do, is that they were willing to cross that line. You can debate why that was and how U.S. policy failed up to that point and allowed us to get to this point. But now the U.S. is in a position where we're suffering from some of the same meddling interference that many of our NATO allies have had to deal with for quite some time. Have not dealt with so well either. It's not like they, they knew about it, they warned us about it, and they took care of it on their turf. They didn't. It's a mixed bag. I mean, some of our uh, allies have done better than others. Um, and one thing our project is trying to do, given that Durham Marshall Fund is a transatlantic organization, is try to have a transatlantic conversation yeah. about this. What are the lessons learned from the frontline states? Which are the cases where there has been a more effective effort to push back against this, to build resili resilience within their societies? Um, but you're right. It's still a problem. Uh, the, in Western European uh, recent elections, they've also had similar attempts to interfere. Some have handled it better than others. But we want to have more of a transatlantic actual conversation about this and figure out how all democracies can work together to deal with this problem. It's an important conversation to have. I want to dig a little deeper, Laura into why Putin is doing this. I want us to be very clear about what motivates him to want to mess with our brains, mess with our political system, cause doubts about democratic governance. 
Talk to me about why you think. Now we are speculating a little bit. Talk to me about why you think he, he's doing this. Yeah, different. there are different views on this question, but I will talk to you about what I think. Um, number one, I think it's really important to to state up front here as well that Vladimir Putin is acting out of weakness. I think that there is a danger in some of the conversations around um, what Russia is doing in, in inadvertently making Putin out to seem 10 foot tall. And that's really not the case. Putin is acting here out of weakness. Russia is an objectively declining power. Its economy is shrinking. Um, Putin is hanging on to power by increasingly authoritarian means. So Putin's tactics here are a demonstration, in fact, of weakness, number one. Number two, because of that, I think that Vladimir Putin believes that the only way for Russia to remain relevant on the world stage um, and, in fact, to restore what he believes, you know, to be Russia's some of earlier, its earlier greatness, is to weaken others. In other words, Russia can gain relative power only, you know, uh, uh, differentiated from a country like China, which is an objectively rising power. Russia can only gain power by weakening others. And so, you know, this is a classic, you know, hit your adversaries at the core of their strength, our democratic institutions. And what Putin has discovered while well, using his KGB training is that um, identifying the vulnerabilities in our societies exploiting the free and openness that Jamie referenced earlier um, and being able to weaponize some of these new tools and technologies where there are vulnerabilities that we never even realized and turning them against us is a very effective asymmetric way to hit at the United States and our democratic partners and allies in order to weaken us. I mean, you know, he has other goals that are sort of related to this, which is weakening NATO, sort of trying to turn NATO countries against one another, um, you know, weakening the EU. All these things are caught up with one another. But the, the other piece of it is this allows Putin to argue at home that democracy doesn't work. Right. right. So he would like uh, Americans to think that democracy doesn't work might as well be authoritarian as he is, as China is, as Iran is, that freedom is not such a great idea, that uh, to polarize us as much as possible, and we'll talk a little bit about ways that's done outside the election scheme in, in a bit. I really I do want to do that. But I want to bring in one historical uh, element, uh, and I'll use a word here that you'll know, I think, but a lot in our audience may not, and the word is desinformatia. It's a Russian word meaning disinformation. And in fact, Stalin derived the word from disinformation, which didn't really exist in the English language. It was misinformation, but that's a different thing. That means you don't know. Disinformation means purposeful fake news, as, as some people will say. And under Stalin, desinformatia, there were hundreds of operatives, maybe thousands, who worked to pour disinformation into the Western system. So this is something that's been going on since Soviet times that he's picked up on as a way to weaken one's enemies and, and their, their beliefs. The difference is that technologically, there are now all sorts of ways that you didn't either. You know, then you could, you, know, you could buy a journalist, you could get somebody to say something on, on, on the radio. But now you've got social media, which is supposed to make us better informed and freer and instead is being turned against us so that we are constantly being bombarded with misinformation, disinformation. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a modernized version of an old playbook that the Soviet Union used against the U.S. during the Cold War. Uh, some, I think, raised that argument to argue that we shouldn't be that concerned about it. We've always had to deal with this. We dealt with it during the Cold War. We'll be able to get through this now. And we certainly think that we can deal with this. We can make America more resilient. The thing that we're concerned about is the, the technological advances that you talked about. 
You talked about buying off journalists. The, even through that method, there would be a limited reach of that disinformation. Another KGB uh, defectors have talked about another tactic, which would be to recruit someone who was disaffected, who had a, a grievance with the government. Uh, they would meet someone. They would give them some money. They would set up a front organization. They would start a newsletter. If you think about the reach of that sort of effort, which would sometimes cost tens of thousands of dollars for the, the Soviet Union, it was a very small reach. It was maybe several hundred people would read that newsletter uh, that they basically controlled the messaging in. Um, it's very different now. They can, through almost no cost, they can actually do this remotely through technology, through social media. They can target almost every American, anyone who has a cell phone, anyone who is on these social media platforms. And that's what I think we really discovered um, through 2016 in terms of looking at the Russian attempts to start to insert themselves into our politics. And what our project has shown through some of our social media monitoring since the election, the concerning thing is that this continues to this day. So this was not just aimed at one candidate, one political party. They have now tried and successfully inserted themselves into our ongoing political debates. So every single day on social media, there are Russian backed accounts, Russian linked accounts, pushing certain messaging, trying to influence Americans' opinions about public policy, about social and cultural issues in American society. And it's probably worth noting that Americans get their news and information differently than they did in the past. When I was a, when I was a kid, you know, there were three networks, I, Walter Cronkite or somebody listened to, and he told you this is the way it is. You read the New York Times, the Washington Post, or the Wall Street Journal, even your local paper pretty much echoed that. Now you have a lot of people go on Facebook, who go to websites, who go on Twitter, they follow particular people. So suddenly it's very easy to get what's called confirmation bias to say, ah, this speaks to me and go off in a certain direction and get pulled in by some of these Russian designs. Am I right? Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, one thing that's also really important to, to remember here and, and part of what you just said speaks to this. So much of what the Russians are doing here is finding the cleavages in our society and trying to sort of, you know, dynamite them open into caverns. Um, and, you know, in our sort of hyper-partisan environment um, and in an, in an era where um, emotions run hot, I think, on, on both sides of the aisle and where there's a lot of issues that are, are very divisive and polarizing in our society – um, the Russians have found a way to, number one, use that hot emotion to be able to, as you said, um, you know, really uh, use confirmation bias to be able to get people to sort of buy into their messaging, number one, and then sort of insert further extremist messages. So they'll try to pull the conversation to the extremes. Mm -hmm. And then what they will do is actually amplify the extreme poles of the conversation to make it seem like the extreme views are actually far more prevalent than they may be in objective reality. So that's the other piece of what social media has allowed to do is essentially to, if you think about it, you know, distort the information arc um, to make it seem like certain views are far more prevalent than they may actually be. Let's make clear, because you do in your research, that we're talking not just in the context of an election campaign. We're talking about all kinds of issues that m are dividing Americans, 
the question for them is how do they get a wedge in there and increase that divide, make people on both sides more radical, more angry, more frustrated? Pick one. There's there's the demonstrations in Charlottesville. There's the NFL uh, refusal to stand for the anthem. Jimmy, talk about whichever one interests you. And, and, and let's do it as a little case study so people understand what they're doing to make us more polarized than we would might otherwise be. Yeah, both of the instances you mentioned are things that we've seen on our social media monitoring since uh, uh, Inauguration Day uh, and obviously, you know, during the Trump presidency. So it's pretty much any hot button, not even just political issues, but societal debates that are going on. So Charlottesville was a great example, uh, trying to amplify uh, fringe voices on both sides of the debate to get more and more Americans angry. The same thing with the take, uh, take the knee NFL controversy. Um, the other thing that actually, if you go back to the election, and this has been revealed through the Senate Intelligence Committee hearings, they were doing this also in the run-up uh, to Election Day. Uh, in one case, we're using Facebook groups. They set up fake Facebook groups, one aimed at people who supported Texas secession from the United States, a second group that was promoting American Muslims and uh, appeared to just be a group of American Muslims uh, talking about life in America and, you know, advocacy uh, for certain rights uh, for American Muslims. They tried to actually create two competing rallies in the same place in Texas on the same day at the same time. And now there's been a video, I think, uh, out of that where actual Americans showed up on competing sides uh, in support of activities that were completely fake and groups that didn't exist. And none of the people there actually knew who the real organizers, uh, organizers were. They did not know that these were actually people likely sitting in Russia, uh, were not even Americans. Now, the Russians, I think, just hoped to provoke, uh, promote some violence and maybe get people to attack each other. Luckily, the police were there and kept the sides apart. But that's a very scary example of how far this can go in actually encouraging Americans to take action, to show, take time out of their day, to show up physically somewhere and agitate about a particular topic um, that was an entirely fake construct. And we see that again and again since Election Day, just in terms of the different sides of issues where uh, they're trying to amplify. And one important point, this often gets lost because of the discussion about fake news. A lot of this isn't even fake. I mean, it's, it's news that's actually relatively accurate, sometimes a little bit distorted. And they're just trying, as Laura said, to kind of put their finger on the scale and increase uh, the level of volume on both sides of the debate just to make people angrier and to pit people against each other. Yeah, really skilled disinformation operatives use the truth largely and then insert little bits of disinformation in that truth because that way it's, it's much more credible. I mean, these are professionals. These are people who have thought through the psychology of how you manipulate public opinion and are utilizing various social media to do it. I don't know if you want to add anything to what I've just said. No, I think that's exactly right. A couple of other points on how we see this operating. One is that, you know, in order to become established sort of credible voices on social media, regardless of, of what your platform is, there's there's a certain entree um, phase that is required to develop an audience, to develop a following. And so what we see in particular on the Twitter networks that we track is, you know, a there's been different phases of this process. And some of what these accounts will do is message on issues that aren't something that the Kremlin necessarily cares about at all. 
simply to insinuate themselves to an audience, to establish themselves as somebody who, wow, that person really thinks the same way I do. I'm really interested in what they have to say. Let me follow that. You start tracking that conversation, start tracking that particular persona. And over time, that account or that page begins to inject other messaging that is more divisive, that is more pushing things towards, you know, the Kremlin's interests. And so a lot of what our our social media monitoring dashboard shows is we see a lot of messaging about things that have to do with, say, Syria and trying to trash the White Helmets, the humanitarian mm-hmm. group that has done such incredible work um, saving Syrian civilians. Or they'll talk about, you know, a lot of issues about Ukraine and really trying to, you know, trash, um, you know, uh, you know, Ukrainian activists um, and promote sort of the Russian view about Ukraine. You know, they're doing that because they're, they're, they're taking advantage of the audience to inject Kremlin viewpoints while also then sowing these divisive messages. So that's, that's I I think one piece that's really important to remember is there's a whole development phase when, when people sometimes we get the question of like, well, how much did, you know, interact seeing that one tweet matter um, to any one particular person's viewpoint? And part of the problem here is, number one, it's a it's an overtime phenomena that, you know, there's different phases, as I mentioned. And number two, you know, a lot of the goal actually is not necessarily to convince people of a particular view. It's just to sow discord and confusion. Mm-hmm. That, that we're at each other's throats. You mentioned also that Moscow uses financial influence uh, and other means to support and cultivate ties with various political organizations, including, for example, take anti-fracking groups. Now, Russia, most of its wealth, it comes from oil. Fracking brings down the price of energy. Moscow has an interest in getting Americans really angry at frackers and saying, oh, this is poisoning our water and all that. Now, let's start with that. I know there are things on the, where, they, where they take the, the side of the right as well. But here they're pushing the left to get more angry and about fracking because it's in their economic interest. Yeah, I mean, this is another aspect of the of their toolkit that we've seen them deploy for quite some time in Europe. Uh, and some of it's the traditional means of influence uh, that governments often have or trying to use the business community. Um, that's certainly been a trend in, in Europe uh, over the last several decades. Um, more concerningly, in some European countries, they've uh, actually directly funded political parties, including in some Western Euro- European democracies. I think our concern is that um, there's a danger here in the U.S. There are some loopholes in our system that I think are are potential areas of exploitation, not just by Russia, but by other foreign actors. China, I think, is something is a a concern that we have. They're getting into this business, too, you think? Yes. And I think you look at what the Chinese have been doing very recently in New Zealand and Australia. Mm -hmm. um, They've actually reached the point where they have been so brazen that they've decided that they can effectively buy off politicians directly. Uh, and so we're looking as part of our project at ways that we can make it more difficult for foreign governments to try to influence our politics. Um, you know, political groups beyond just political parties, any political adv- advocacy group, I think, needs to be concerned about this as well. And like you said, we've seen that on the left. We've seen it on the right with groups interested in gun rights. We've seen it in Europe with pro-life movements being really targeted by this. They've actually used Russian Orthodox Church uh, at times as a way to kind of reach out to certain like-minded groups of uh, European social conservatives and try to develop ties. And it often starts um, in very non-political ways. It just starts as kind of friendly outreach by mysterious individuals who invite 
people to send delegations to visit Russia. And, uh, to, uh, and again, this is very similar tactics to what we've seen the Chinese and others uh, use in the past. Uh, and our concern is there are some basic things that Congress uh, could easily do to start to make this more difficult. And, and we're going to have that discussion. I want to leave, leave plenty of time for the discussion. But two more questions before I do. One is if somebody were to say, oh, sure, they're doing that. But you know what? So is the U.S. We've been doing things, stuff like this for years. What do you think Voice of America does? Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty. How would you respond to that? I think that's a really important question, and there's a number of, of really big distinctions. I mean, one is the United States is trying, you know, in any of our democracy promotion activities, it's always about empowering people and empowering voices. What the Russians are trying to do here, what the Russian government is trying to do here, is disempower people and disempower voices, number one. Um, you know, we're trying to build stronger institutions. The Russians are trying to weaken those institutions. Um, you know, and I think that that is a really, really critical distinction in um, in the kinds of activities that the United States has promoted, Voice of America, um, Radio for Europe, Radio for Liberty, et cetera. The, the other thing about that is, I mean, we're very clear about what VOA and RFERL are. I mean, the, there's no question about, you know, where, what, where their funding comes from, the viewpoint that VOA in particular is promoting, et cetera. Um, you know, the kind of covert stuff that we see the Russians doing here, um, I think, is very, very different. Um, and I think that that's a really important piece to bear in mind. Jamie may have additional points to add on this. No, I, mean, I think that I wish we were doing more. And <laughs> as you know, at FDD and you follow these issues a lot, we do very little, actually, in terms of the amount of resources we spend to support political parties, to do the training that's uh, required in many uh, countries that are authoritarian regimes. Um, and quite frankly, multiple administrations of both parties has, have often been far too reticent to actually stand up for democracy and devote the resources. And we're having a debate right now with between Congress and the Trump administration about some of this, about the future of the National Endowment for Democracy or the, the sort of assistance that we provide through um, the DRL Bureau at the State Department. Um, so the reality, I mean, the Putin regime likes to put out this narrative that we're always trying to overthrow him and sponsor coups and things like that. Um, you know, I think if you actually look at the totality of U.S. programs, we're nowhere near providing any kind of uh, covert support to do those sorts of things. All of our the other important point is all of our activities in that space, we make freely available to every political party, anyone, even Vladimir Putin's political party could actually come and get U.S. support. And if they want to attend and get political training, figure out how to run a campaign. Uh, and that obviously is not the way the Russians go about uh, their interference. Is there any component of the Russian campaign that we haven't discussed? Because I want to get to solutions, but I want to make sure I don't cut you off before. Uh, any, any, I mean, the only other thing that I can think of, and you did mention this, is that they're doing this in many other countries. That I was in Spain not that long ago, mm -hmm. plenty of anger in Catalonia over independence. From what I read in, in what you've written, uh, they see a possibility of getting Catalonians more angry at the, at the Spanish government and the Spanish people more angry at Catalonia, and they'll do this in all these covert ways. So they are working in all these other countries, in some cases supporting far-right parties that they think also can help polarize the society. That's the only other thing I just wanted to make clear. Go ahead. Even related to that, it, it goes beyond Europe. They're also doing this in our backyard. Uh, just yesterday, my former boss, Senator Rubio, uh, joined with Senator Menendez to send a letter to the administration, to Secretary Tillerson, who's about to go to Mexico, uh, to urge him to do more to engage with the Mexicans on uh, recent signs that the Russians are trying to interfere in the upcoming Mexican election. Mm -hmm. And General McMaster has actually spoken about this publicly 
and expressed warnings. That's another area where they, if through their efforts, they could maybe tip the election in a certain direction. They could get a result that would lead to uh, trouble in the U.S.-Mexican relationship. That could have major implications for uh, the southwestern uh, U.S. and things like uh, the debates about NAFTA, border security. And so they're also doing it elsewhere in our neighborhood. It's not just an American problem. It's not just a European problem. So, Laura, let's talk in the time we have remaining. What are the what, what are the tools or weapons we have to stop, hopefully, um, Putin from continuing to do this, to let him know that there's a serious price he'll pay if, if he continues the, with these really subversive activities? I think there's a range of things we need to be doing. Some of them are defensive, um, closing the vulnerabilities that are that exist that are being taken advantage of, and some of them are deterrent um, and, and sort of raising the costs. Uh, on the defensive side, there's some long-term steps we need to be taking um, that include things like reducing the polarization that we just talked about that Putin is exploiting so well. Um, some of it is um, better media literacy training um, for our society. Um, you know, people. It's hard to do. <laughs> I said long term. <laughs> um, I, I have a philosophy of get caught trying. Um, so even if it's hard to do, um, I'm going to put it out there. Um, but on the more near term and achievable or, or immediately achievable steps, um, we certainly need to be doing things like um, more resources for states' election cybersecurity. It's actually one of the things we, we didn't touch mm-hmm. on earlier mm-hmm. is that um, the you know Department of Homeland Security has disclosed that 21 states had parts of their election system probed by Russian um, hackers. Um, probed. So they're looking for ways. Could they change the results? We don't know if they've changed the results. There's but no that, evidence that they've changed any results or that they actually compromised anything. But they certainly were looking for vulnerabilities, right. um, whether that's in the vote tallying process or even in the voter registration registration process, you can certainly monkey around even with that to prevent people from being able to get in the door. So there are steps. There's legislation pending in Congress um, that would help close some of the vulnerabilities on election cybersecurity. DHS is working with the states on some of those um, as well, and that's really important. There are steps that the tech companies need to be taking. They are all trying to reckon with this right now um, to different degrees. Um, We're clearly still not there. We still see a lot of challenges on those platforms. Um, I think that it's one that is, it's a very serious conversation that is not yet happening at the level that it needs to be happening. Um, I think that there are steps that um, obviously the administration needs to be taking as well um, in terms of deterrent messaging. One of the things we saw that was really important in both um, Germany and France in sort of staving off some of the highest end um, activity by the Russians with some very strong, you know, deterrent language by senior officials about the consequences that Russia would face for interference. And maybe this is, we're we're getting it in the last couple of minutes. What about the possibility of letting Putin know through legislation or other policy that there will be consequences, there will be punishments, there will be sanctions, that if we know that he is doing things that we consider crossing the line, we, it, it will have a serious impact on our relations, and, he, and we will make him suffer. Yeah, Congress has already played a positive role uh, in that respect with the initial uh, sanctions that passed. Uh, again, my former boss, Senator Rubio, along with Senator Van Hollen of Maryland, bipartisan introduced right. a new bill that actually would uh, set up uh, additional sanctions if this happens again and kind of have that hanging over the discussion with Vladimir Putin. I think just to echo what Laura said, the high-level messaging from the administration is important, though. Uh, We've seen in the national security strategy, I think the national defense strategy, important notes about this problem. 
General McMaster has actually spoken frequently about right. this. National Security Advisor. Just so but what also needs to be happening, including when uh, Mike Pompeo, for instance, has, has been reported, is hosting Russian intelligence officials here in Washington, he better be talking very tough behind the scenes as well because the Russians need to hear directly in public and privately from the administration that there will be consequences if they continue to do this sort of thing in our politics, especially in the run-up to 2018. And, and one other thing I'll just mention, we need the cyber weapons, both defensive and offensive, so that when Mike Pompeo is talking to them and saying, you, mu you must not continue to do this, they, he should also be able to know, we have things we can do to you on a cyber basis that are way above your capabilities. America needs to be not just competitive, we need to be way ahead of everybody else if we are to prevail. Do you agree with that? I do. And I also think this has to be a sort of whole of government strategy. I mean, one of the challenges that we see with this is, as we discussed, it's a multifaceted toolkit that the Russians are using. And we tend to silo our approaches um, to responding. And what we really need is an entire interagency approach um, that is looking at the whole picture, seeing the whole picture analytically and responding to the whole picture so that we can actually be sure that we are responding to what the Russians are doing and not missing parts of it. Last words? I completely agree. The other, just I'll end by, by uh, echoing another point that Laura made about the, uh, we need to avoid polarization, political polarization on this issue. Uh, unfortunately, and speaking as a Republican who's part of this effort, we have to separate this issue of foreign interference from the debate about Trump collusion. Um, whatever you think about President Trump, whether you support him, whether you don't like him, we need to realize that our intelligence agencies, both the Obama administration, now the Trump administration, have said this foreign interference challenge is a problem. Bipartisan members of Congress have said it's a problem. We need to set aside the investigations, let them run their course, and focus on what we can do in the run-up to 2018 and 2020 to actually make this more difficult for the Russians or any other foreign actor who wants to exploit our openness and our democracy and try to undermine it. You guys have done a great job introducing our audience to this subject. If they want to learn more, if they want to read some of what you've actually written, tell them where to go so they can find that. Yeah, our website is um, www.securingdemocracy.org. The social media dashboard that we mentioned that's tracking these networks is called Hamilton 68. That's a reference actually to the, one of the Federalist Papers, Federalist 68, written by Alexander Hamilton, that um, warned, even at our country's founding, of the threat that foreign interference would pose to our democracy. And we, one, of the, one of the papers that Cliff has cited um, with some of our research uh, today was actually published by the Democracy Journal. And so um, very, very pleased to be able to, to have folks read that as well. Jamie Feiler Rosenberger, you've uh, shown light on one of the many ways uh, that our country is under attack. It's, you, the work you're doing is very important. Um, and we'll hope to talk to you again about whether or not we're doing what we need to do to defend ourselves properly. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. Thank you once again for joining us for this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like this week's episode, or if you have criticisms, we welcome your feedback. Leave us a review on iTunes. We hope you'll join us again soon. I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.